0: Well, good morning, everyone. If we have not had the chance to meet, my name is Terry Swan. I'm the senior pastor here at Salem. We're so glad that you are here today. I am glad to be in the house of the Lord. If you are with us online, thank you so much for joining us today. Has anyone gotten here because they're just a little stir-crazy at home? Yeah, maybe just a little bit. I'm glad to be with you. Now, we are beginning a new sermon series this weekend entitled Quit. Quit. Now, I can imagine that that title maybe caught your attention and you thought, "Has the pastor lost her mind?" She has "COVID sucked her brain out. Um, what is she telling us to quit?" <laughs> well, I'm not telling you to quit faith. I'm not telling you to quit believing. In fact, it's quite the opposite. We are going to explore the things that get in the way of following Jesus, and hopefully and prayerfully, quit the things that stand between us in a deeper relationship with God. So will you pray with me as we begin? Gracious and holy God, thank you for your love. May we shout Jesus from every corner of our lives, just as the beautiful song reflected. Help me to get out of the way. God, speak for me. Use me as your vessel, broken as I am, that you might be glorified. May the meditations of my heart and words of my mouth be acceptable in your sight. And I pray this in the name of Jesus and all of God's children said, amen. Amen. We're having a little bit of trouble with the lights, if you can't tell, but that's okay. We'll just, come, we'll just keep, keep going as the lights kind of get worked out. For many of us, the notion of quitting is just not something that we can fathom, right? Quitting is not a quality we admire in ourselves or in, or in others. And in fact, society has this common saying quoted by Vince Lombardi, winners never quit, you finish it. And quitters never win. How many of you are watching the Olympics right now? Yeah? We watched it yesterday. Is anybody with me when they think that curling is like watching drying paint? (laughs) My husband loves curling. And so he's been watching this and I'm going, what does that even mean? I mean, I'm just watching it. But I doubt there have been many coaches that um, have encouraged their uh, athletes to quit, right? In fact, they've probably done quite the opposite. They continue to encourage them to keep going no matter what. However, from the Christian lens, biblical quitting goes hand in hand with choosing. Goes hand in hand with choosing. As Jerry Scazzaro puts it in her book about being emotionally healthy, she says this, When we quit those things that are damaging to our souls or the souls of others, we are freed up to choose other ways of being and relating that are rooted in love and lead to life. When we quit fear of what others think, we choose freedom. When we quit lies, we choose truth. When we quit blaming, we choose to take responsibility for our own actions. When we quit faulty thinking, we choose to live in reality. Quitting is a way of putting off what scripture calls falsehood or old self claiming our new identity in Christ. And the Apostle Paul told this to the second, in the second letter to the Corinthians, the church in Corinth. And i come read to you from chapter 5, beginning with verse 17. So then if anyone is in Christ, that person is part of the new creation. Read that next line with me. The old things have gone away, and look, new things have arrived. Let that sink in for a moment. The old things have gone away, and look, new things have arrived. All of these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ, who gave us the ministry of reconciliation. In other words, God was reconciling the world to himself through Christ by not counting people's sins against them. He has trusted us with this message of reconciliation. The old has gone away, and what are we supposed to do? Look. New things have arrived. The new has come. God has reconciled it all. There's nothing that we had to do in the midst of that. We didn't have to work for it. We didn't have to try to make our way to Jesus and work our way up to the ladder. No, Jesus reconciled it all for us on the cross. However, even when this gift is given to us right before us, and all we have to do is accept it, so many times we start to kind of go back into our old patterns, kind of move back into the ways that we've known things to work or we feel comfortable with. And I don't know about you, church, but not always is Christianity comfortable. Amen? Not always is it comfortable. One of those old patterns that I think a lot of humanity struggles with is being afraid of what others might say or think. Anyone here ever struggled with that? I know I have. Being afraid of what others might think. I grew up in a small town, Norris City, Illinois, about two and a half hours from here. And it's a little farm town. It was maybe thousand people, salute, right? And that was from hee hall reference for those of you who, okay, you know, that might be not as old as me. Um, but everybody knew everybody else's business in a small town. Anybody else grow up in a small town here? Okay. Everybody else knew everybody else's business. And if you did something, maybe something you weren't supposed to do, Your mom knew about it probably before you got home, right? And sometimes, sometimes uh, things would be said that you didn't even do. Rumors would fly around a small town. And, And, you know, as I grew up in that small town, I started to begin to worry and think about, well, what are other people saying? What are other people thinking? And that kind of carried on over into being a pastor, as much as I tried to fight those old ways, it carried on over into my new life. I would worry about what others would think. If my daughter showed up in worship in a halter top, I worried what the ladies would say. <laughs> right? It just is part of our human nature, I think, to think and worry about what others would say and think. Anyone here ever watched the old movie? Or well, I shouldn't say it's an old movie. It's a movie that was out a few years ago, um, starring Mel Gibson. What Women Want. Anybody remember that movie? It's a funny movie. And after an accidental electric shock, the character who was played by Mel Gibson could hear the thoughts of the women, and they really weren't that flattering. He could really hear everything they were thinking and saying, and it was a hysterical movie. But the whole premise of the film is based on the assumption that what others think is important to us. We like to think that growing up and becoming mature means that we have become the self-confident person that's a self-differentiated adult, immune to the criticism of others. But is that true? No, not really. It's simply not true. Unless we move to a deserted island or the middle of nowhere and live our lives in utter solitude, we can never escape the opinions and evaluations of others. That's just a fact. And likewise, our human nature, we never can escape thinking or evaluating others in our own light we're constantly judging others on the basis of gender, race, economic status, age, appearance, what high school they attended here in <laughs> St. Louis, <clears throat> or if you're a Cardinal fan or not. Right? I recently took an implicit bias course. Anybody here ever taken an implicit bias course? It is fascinating, and I encourage you to take one of those. For instance, if I put up two pictures, if I put up a picture of an Apple logo and a Google logo, immediately you would have some thoughts come to your mind, and you might have an opinion over one or the other. Or if I put up two pictures of a truck, you guys out here, if I put up a picture of a Chevy or a Ford, You might have an opinion about the other one, right? This is just human nature. You get it. What we don't think, we think. We all have implicit bias. So how do we overcome this fear that we have of what others think about us? How do we quit that? Relying on the approval of others for our sense of self-worth is a direct contradiction of biblical truth. Our sense of worth, whether we feel good about ourselves, our sense of lovability, our sense of goodness, must not come from what others think, but it can only come from two foundational realities, our image and our identity as those who follow Jesus Christ, disciples. We marked these children this morning with an identity. It was an outward sign of an inward grace that was going to move and work through them. We are made in the image of God. Being made in God's image means that we're of sacred worth. Say this, I am of sacred worth. Sometimes we just have to say it to ourselves. We are God's children and God's treasure. And we have this new identity in Jesus Christ. As Apostle Paul proclaims to the church in Corinth, we are made new in him. We're to look toward the newness of life. The old is gone and this newness is found in our relationship with Jesus Christ. And he teaches us that Jesus did all that work for us. We are reconciled because of his love toward us. But when we start looking back, getting into those old patterns, looking at others for our identity, then we are choosing a life of slavery or addiction, not a life of freedom. Why do you think that so many people are addicted to all kinds of forms of social media today? And I stand right there with you. I bet I looked at Facebook on snow days more than I've looked at Facebook in a long time. Why do you think we do this? Because we want others to think something of us? We want others to think we have it all together or we want people to think that we're a warrior for a cause? Or we want people to think we have all the answers or that our family looks perfect when it's not? Or we want attention or approval? We're not alone, church, in this addiction of whatever means we seek it out. Scripture is filled with examples of people who got sidetracked by looking to others for their identity instead of God. And that fear of what other people think seems to be at the root of all of it. Abraham, if you think back to Abraham... Abraham was afraid of what the Egyptian king might think of him or do if he found out Sarah was his wife. So what did he do? He lied. He lied about who he was. Reuben, if you go back to the Old Testament in Genesis, Reuben preferred to treat his brother Joseph kindly rather than sell him out as a slave. But the pressure of the nine other brothers overwhelmed him. And he chose to care about what they thought and what they wanted to do instead of what he knew was right, instead of defending his own little brother. Aaron, it's the brother of Moses. He cared more about what the people wanted in Moses' absence as he was up hearing from God, receiving the Ten Commandments. And he went away from what Moses had instructed. And we could go, if we open the Bible and continue to read, we could go on and on and on of people who have succumbed to the fear of what other people might think about them or what they wanted to do instead of what God was saying. You are my child. This is the way I've put it in front of you. And all of these situations led to more problems and were the consequences of looking to others for that validation. So it is with us too, church. We have this problem too when we succumb to the fear of what others think, when we've lost sight of our identity as those marked as disciples of Jesus Christ. As the old Johnny Lee song says, we're looking for love in all the wrong places, looking for love in too many faces. Anybody know that song? Yeah. Schizero says, For many Christians today, the love of God in Christ remains an intellectual belief. We affirm rather than an experiential reality that transforms our thoughts and feelings about ourselves. And as a result, we look for love from other people in destructive ways. One of the great Christian heroes of our time, Bernard de Clairvaux, was a Christian leader in the 12th century. And he taught how the love of God leads us to a healthy love of ourselves. And he calls this the four degrees of love. The first degree is that we begin by loving ourselves for our own sake. When it comes to matters of spirituality, it becomes about the do's and the don'ts. Well, I'll love myself and I'll come to prayer and I'll give and I'll worship. It's all about us. And it's centered on ourselves and our actions toward God. The second degree is loving God for his gifts and blessings. I'm going to love God so that God will pour God's blessings down upon me. And when things get tough and we meet those trials in life, we tend to pull away from God because God's not blessing anymore. The third degree is loving God for God's self alone. At this stage, our love for God is based not on our own feelings or our own circumstances. We love and trust God for the beauty and goodness of who God is and not for what blessing we can get from God. It's all about God. Our blessings and our our love are poured out upon God. And the fourth degree is loving ourselves for the sake of God. This is the highest degree of love. The width, length, heights, and depths of Christ's love is a love that surpasses human knowledge. Has now penetrated the depth of our being. We can accept that love. We can live in that love. Setting us free from our need to borrow that love from others. We are love-worthy because God first loved us. And perfect love, as first John says, drives out all fear. I've given you a lot of biblical examples of those in our Christian story who got it wrong, right? Who leaned into others instead of leaning into God, but there's one in the biblical story that I lift before you who did remember who she was. The Gospel of John tells a story about a woman who cast out the fear of what others would think about her. This is on six days before the Passover, it says. This comes from the Gospels. Six days before Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, home of Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Lazarus and his sisters hosted a dinner for him, and Martha served, and Lazarus was among those who joined him at the table. When Ma- then Mary took an extraordinary amount, almost three quarters of a pound of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She anointed Jesus' feet with it and then wiped his feet dry with her hair. The house was filled with the aroma of the perfume. Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, the one who was about to betray him, complained this perfume was worth a year's wage. Why wasn't it sold and the money given to the poor? He said this is not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and he carried the money bag and would take what was in it. Then Jesus said, leave her alone. This perfume was to be used in preparation for my burial, and this is how she has used it. You will always have the poor among you, and you won't always have me. She cast away all the fear that she had of what the disciples might think about her as she poured out this nard upon Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. Sitting at the feet of Jesus, Mary does not care about what they think, her only care is for Jesus. His forgiveness and his love guides her actions. And this profound experience not only released her from any shame or guilt that she might have carried, but it illumines the truth. She is of value. She's loved. She's thankful. She's forgiven. She's a child of God. When we remember that church, we will do some extraordinary things things that people might look at and say, why is that person doing that? Why are they going out in the bitter cold and serving the homeless? Why are they giving 10% of their income? Why are they teaching that Bible study? Why are they doing the things that they're doing? Because when we have this love in our hearts, this grace that's poured down upon us, we might do some extraordinary things. We might choose freedom. That's what Mary chooses. She chooses freedom. So if you need to quit finding your identity in the world today, church, quit. The more you ground your identity in God, the less you need approval of people. Amen? You won't get approval from people no matter what you do. That's just a fact. There will always be somebody who will think you shouldn't be doing what you're doing. But when you choose freedom, you're choosing God. choosing God. And I pray that you will contemplate the love of God as you are in Christ and love yourself as God loves you. As we come to the table today, we need to remember and be thankful for the love of Christ that in turn enables us to love ourselves and to love our neighbor.